about your truths from your word. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts, our souls, and our minds as a result. Keep in mind that you are not done with us now, that will help us to keep in mind that you are not done with us, that we have great opportunities and you provide whatever stamina, strength, wisdom that's necessary to get things done, even when we're trying to get out of it. Father, I pray that you would give us a mission, give us a vision that we could follow you all the days of our lives and be passionate about it, Father. We pray it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, I'm excited to get to share with you all this morning. I was at the First Colony Church last Sunday and got a really nice uh, uh, reception there. They have two services. They, they come out of the, the Church of Christ tradition, and so they're an independent church, a uh, non-denominational church, and their early service is still a cappella, which is a Church of Christ tradition. And so I taught the, I, I preached the early service. They told me to preach the same service the second time uh, for the second service, but I thought, what a great opportunity to, like, uh, hike attendance. So I told everybody in the first service that I was preaching an entirely different message in the second service and urged them to come back. Then I taught, they, they combined all of their adult classes in the gym, so I, I did the early service, did the adult classes, and then did the second service. And it was a, a blessing for me, and uh, uh, those of you who um, uh, have a chance might go online um, and, and just check it out. That church is doing some neat things down in Sugarland. And so it was an honor to get to be a part of them. I think some of them may be watching today. And so it's another reason for me to say thank you to them for that opportunity. I'm really stoked about this morning. This morning, I've jettisoned forward a little bit and I've skipped over 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Not permanently. We'll be back in 1st John next week. But I skipped over to hit Jude this week for some other reasons that pertain to the calendar. And uh, uh, we don't know why the books are in the order they're in in the New Testament anyway. Uh, that's been lost in the pages of history. Certainly, uh, we can see that we put the Gospels first, and we seem to have put them in an order that the early church thinks they may have been composed, though the early church may not have been right about that. And then we've got Acts, and then we've got Paul's epistles, which we're really not sure why they're grouped the way they are. They're almost grouped by longer epistles down to the shorter epistles. But they're also grouped within the idea of those epistles to the churches first, and then those epistles to individuals later. And then you've got the general or the also called Catholic epistles, which includes Peter and the first second Peter and includes Jude, includes James and some other epistles. And that's what we're looking at right now. So this morning is on Jude. Now, I first met Jude uh, uh, closely. I'm talking here about the book, not the song. Um, I first got to know this book when I found out, and I believe I was either in high school or I may have been a freshman in college. But I found out that the book of Jude quotes and references from some non-biblical writings that are called the pseudepigrapha. Now, that's a weird word, but it's a good word to have. So I want you to say it with me. Pseudepigrapha. Yes, that's very good. You can do all sorts of things with it. You can talk about things that are pseudepigraphal. You can do, just it's a magnificent word. It's actually a combination of two Greek words. There's the first Greek word, which is pseudos, or in Greek you'd say pseudos. And 
Because the P.S. is one letter in Greek. The pseudos, we get the word pseudo from it. Anybody care to guess what it means? It means false. And then epigrapha comes from a Greek word epigraphe, which means, um, yeah, grapho is the Greek word for write, and epi means upon. So it means an inscription or a superscription. In other words, it's, it's like the tagline, if you will, or an inscription. So this pseudepigrapha means a writing that's falsely inscribed or superscribed as being from someone it's not really from. It's as if I were to write you a letter and I were to tell you that the letter, in the letter, I would say, here's a letter from Brent to the life group class that meets in the gyms. Well, now, Brent didn't really write it. I wrote it. But I just put Brent's name on it. Because some of you all might read it more if you think it's from Brent than if you think it's from me. And because people tend to get scared when they get letters from lawyers, but letters from pastors, they just think someone died. So, I might have different reasons for doing it, but that would be pseudepigraphal. So here I am, I'm 18 years old, and I, and I find out Jude is quoting from some writings that aren't in the Bible. And I'm thinking, whoa, I want to know about these. I want to read about them. And so these pseudepigraphal writings that are falsely attributed to certain authors, I'm really curious about. So I want to go find them. I find a volume in our student center library at the Broadway church where I grew up. And the student center had the, the volumes one and two that had the Apocrypha in volume one and the Pseudepigrapha in volume two. Now, the Apocrypha, most of us are familiar with. Those are the books generally found in a Catholic Bible that aren't found in a Protestant Bible, generally. But the Pseudepigrapha is a whole different set of writings that aren't found in any of these Bibles, by and large. By and large. And, and, and the reason I say that is Christianity is so broad-reaching. There's an Ethiopian Orthodox church that actually recognizes one of the pseudepigraphal books, the first Enoch that we're going to be talking about, as part of the canon. And they have, for as far back as history can, can trace that church. So, so, but, but there aren't a lot of... Do we have any Ethiopian Orthodox Christians here with us today? I would not think so. Um, there aren't very many of them uh, uh, in existence, even in Ethiopia. But, so I decided I wanted to read and study this. The problem is, you cannot go down to Barnes & Noble and buy Volume 2 put out by Oxford at the time. And I couldn't get on Amazon.com because in 1978, I didn't have the Internet. And so, and Amazon didn't exist. So I was left going to my Christian bookstore and asking Ron Bailey, is there a way to buy this book? he says, well, I have to order it from Oxford, England. And I said, that's okay. How much will it cost? He told me I shuddered. I was a very poor young boy. And I was having to work nine hours a week at Holiday Mart just to pay for my Taco Villa bill. <laughs> and put gas in my car. 
so the idea of spending three weeks' salary on a book, three weeks of wages, I should say, one salary, was really a difficult pill to swallow, but I swallowed it. And I got this book. I mean, it's big enough to choke a mule. This book can be used as a life raft in cases of flooding. This book is a monstrously huge book, and, and, and it's got the book of Enoch. First Enoch. Enoch was a popular guy to use for fake writings. If you recall in the Old Testament, Enoch, in the Old Testament, we read about Enoch. I mean, he's like pre-Noah. This guy's an old, 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 old guy. He goes way, way back. And so, Enoch is the father of Methuselah. Look at Genesis chapter 5. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he followed Methuselah, or fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Doesn't say he died. So it was real convenient for people to write books and say they were by Enoch. Because, hey, God took him. God could send him back. Hey, man, they just shown back up, written another book. And so we've got the book we call First Enoch. And that book was written somewhere probably around 300 to 200 B.C. We can find fragments, Aramaic fragments, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there aren't a ton of them. But the book was clearly popular in certain circles. And it's a book that's got a lot of apocalyptic stuff in it. I actually studied it extensively in a class I had on Revelation and apocalyptic literature. A lot of the phrases in Revelation are phrases that were common in apocalyptic literature at the time, including phrases out of First Enoch. There was this whole type of writing that was prominent. So I was real into this, and I thought, this is so cool. I want to read this, and I want to study it. Now, the church itself... The early church had problems with Jude. Not in mainstream churches, but in, in, in uh, certain areas of the ancient world, the feeling was, hey, Jude's quoting from stuff outside the Bible. So Jude must not be biblical. But by and large, the church recognized, uh, come on, Paul quotes from Greek poets when he's at Mars Hill in Acts I, not 16, it's somewhere in the last half of Acts. When Paul is in Athens, and there's nothing... I've quoted from C.S. Lewis. I'm not saying C.S. Lewis belongs in the Bible. So that's not an issue for me. It's never been an issue for me. And, And I've read through the arguments for and against it, and it just doesn't bother me a bit. It shouldn't bother you. This is Enoch. I mean, this is Jude quoting from a book of Enoch. And he's telling us he's quoting from the book of Enoch because it makes the point he wants to make. And his readers were familiar with it. So within that framework, I think that there is a a place for us to not just study it, but to study it carefully and to grow from it. This is Scripture. Even though it's a short 25-verse letter. Now, pseudepigraphal. You got it? Something that claims to be written by someone 
that didn't really write it. You with me? I'm glad you're with me. Now, what I'd like to do is get off of the pseudepigraphal Hey Jude and get to the real Hey Jude. And so we're going to go over to the monitor. We're going to look at Hey Jude together. Jude is very short. We can actually look at it in some semblance of the entire letter instead of just uh, uh, sort of running through it as we go along. A couple of things of interest I want to point out as we go through the letter, and we'll make sure we cover those things in the next uh, 29 minutes, and we'll be uh, through with class. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, who is Jude? There are three different opinions that are out there. The majority opinion, which is the one I ascribe to, which is the one of the early church, is that Jude is the brother of Jesus. Jesus had several brothers. We would call them in our terminology today half-brothers because they had Mary as mother, Joseph as father genetically, as opposed to Jesus, who was born of a virgin. So after Jesus, after giving birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph continued and they finished their marriage. They consummated the marriage and then uh, had other children, one of them being Jude. Jude is our English Latinized virgin, ver version of the name that is Judas. And so when we read Judas, uh, that's Jude. Judas Iscariot had the same name as one of the brothers of Jesus. Very, very common name in first century uh, Israel. And so Jude could be a servant of Jesus. There was also a Jude who was an apostle. Aside from Iscariot, there were two Judases that were apostles. And so a minority opinion is that this is the apostle Jude. Um, I don't see that. And the reason why I don't see it being the Apostle is because verse 17, that we'll get to in a little bit, says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he is an Apostle, he wouldn't need to be saying that. It is very apparent that Jude and Jesus' brothers came to faith and were pillars of the church. And that makes a lot of sense. They were, they were disgusted with Jesus before the resurrection. They thought Jesus was pompous and, and arrogant for his claims in some regard, though Jesus lived in a spirit of humility. But, but the, the, after the resurrection, I mean, that's a huge testimony. When your family... In fact, it would be a huge testimony against the authenticity of the resurrection if Jesus' family did not come to believe enough to give their lives. So, um, uh, I think it's, it's clear. Now, someone may say, well, why does he say he's the brother of James? Which we know is the name of Jesus' other brother, I might add. And not brother of Jesus. I think to some degree, there's a real emphasis by Jude that Jesus is something entirely different than any human being. If you're reading this in the Greek, and a few of you do that, you'll notice the first verse. Actually, the order of the words is a little different in the Greek. The Greek says, Jude, of Jesus Christ, a servant 
and brother of James. And it's almost as if there's a Jude leading you to it and then pulling it back as a way of making you understand the significance of the fact that Jesus was no ordinary sibling. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus the Messiah. Christ, remember, means Messiah, anointed. Mashiach in the Hebrew. Christos in the Greek. Anointed. So, kept for Jesus the Messiah. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. May you have it, not just have it, but may it grow and grow and grow. A marvelous blessing. A lot of times people come to me and they say, okay, you've got this active list of people you pray for. How do you pray for people? Uh, the, I mean, every day, like the same people. Don't you run out of stuff to pray for? You know, Tim, sitting over here, stout prayer warrior. He is frequently bending in the knees of his heart before the Lord to, to, to ask. And, and, and one of the, the answers for me is, look, I don't just want mercy. I don't just want peace. I don't just want love for you guys. I want it to be multiplied. I want you to have more and more and more. I want it to grow in you. And, 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 and I want it to grow in me. I don't want the level of mercy and peace and love that I have today to be the same level I have tomorrow. I need to learn to love more. I need to learn a greater love, a greater mercy. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I want to pause and talk about that for a moment. To contend. The Greek word for contend means to fight for. It means to proceed in a legal lawsuit over. Words used historically in, in, in that sense of, of you know, I, I sue you over that. I'll fight you over that. I will contend. But what are you fighting for? He says, I want you to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That, that puts faith in a very historical sense. I think it's very important for us to remember that Christianity was never seen as a new religion by the first Christians. Christianity was not some new uh, faith that's just come down the pike. Christianity was a fulfillment, a, 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 a capstone, a finished product of the faith that had been there since Abraham. This was not, okay, now let's start a new religion. This was very much an old faith. 
that had been there, but there reached a point where there was a capstone. If you've ever spent time building a product project, at some point you finish the project and it's completed. And that's the sense in which Jude is saying this. He's writing as a Jewish believer that Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, so I want you to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In Jesus Christ is the capstone. It's the finished testament. Some of the nicest people I've ever gotten to know are Latter-day Saints. And I so respect the Mormons who will spend two years sometimes of their lives out on a mission field. And they'll go around and they'll knock on the doors. And they'll, they'll, they'll talk to people because of their conviction about the truth of the Book of Mormon and the other holy writings as they deem them that have been handed down to the Mormon church. And if you ask them, they will tell you that the Book of Mormon is additional supplemental information that God gave us to reveal things to us and to teach us things that the Bible doesn't cover. And so it came down when Joseph Smith was uh, 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 guided by the angel Moroni to the hill Cumorah, where he unearthed these gold tablets and the angel Moroni helped him translate them. And I love those folks that are out there doing that. I have great respect for them, their devotion. Their commitment to family is amazing oftentimes. But I want to tell you, I believe the imperative from James or Jude is that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. I mean, I don't need the Book of Mormon to tell me something that the Bible hadn't told me. Because the Bible's telling me everything I need to know. And if the Book of Mormon says something contrary to the Bible, then I will label it heretical. In spite of the respect and love that I have for, for the people who are in good faith walking around trying to teach it. There is a place for us to contend for the faith. And it's obvious to think about that in terms of our discussions with people who have other scriptures that they follow. But I want to suggest something beyond a doctrinary perspective of reading that. I want to suggest contending for the faith also means that we will fight for those good deeds and the holiness and the righteousness that God is calling for from His people. Scripture teaches us that we are to be about being different people. That we're to live differently. That we're to have a different ethic. That our moral code is different. That we're empowered with the Spirit of God that enables us to overcome that need to gossip. Even though it tickles our ears to listen. And helps us clear our throat to say it. Especially if we do it piously. And say, uh, we really need to pray for so and so. Because here's what they're doing. We ought to be careful. We're called for something greater than that. 
We're called for something greater than the coarseness of jokes that might make us popular in the workplace. We're called for something greater than hypercriticalism of other people. We're called to be loving. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Something self-control. I only do it if I sing it. The fruit of the Spirit's not a watermelon. What you yelling? There's a song there. I could call my kids up here and they could sing it, but I will not do that to them. That's contending for the faith. Don't simply read this in a doctrinal sense. Look at what he says. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This issue of sensuality, we live in a world that's never been very different than the world of Jude in some ways. We live in a world where our teenagers, our young adults, are bombarded with the message that sexuality outside of marriage is expected. It's natural. That the biblical teachings on such things are old and antiquated. And that, that, that's wrong. You go back and read the biblical times. Sexuality outside of marriage was the norm then. Except for the biblical ethic. The Bible's not just, well, those were different days. People were conservative back then. They wore headgear. No. They were lewd. They would have guards or, or teachers or pedagogies who would walk young boys to school so that the young boys would not get molested by older men. They had horrible open sexualities. They had orgies. And into that open sexuality comes Jude who says, don't ever let someone say that sensuality outside of the norms where God's placed it is appropriate. Contend for the faith. God made us special. He made us unique. He's called us out to be something different than the world. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's where we're going to find mercy. That's where we're going to find peace. And that's where we're going to find love multiplied. Um, we need to check the last couple of verses here where he says, these pervert into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord is a Greek word, kurios. But that Greek word, Lord, is the word that the Greek translators of the Old Testament used 
the Septuagint, to translate, bless you, Richard, to translate Yahweh, the name of God. When God appears before Moses in the burning bush, Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt and bring my people out. Passover, Pesach. We're in the season of Pesach. I want you to lead my people out from bondage. Moses says, they're going to want to know your name. You know, the Egyptians, we've got all these named gods. We got, and they even have God named Nut. I mean, they got all sorts of nuts and gods and names. Um, the answer that God gives is Yahweh. I am. Ego me in the Greek. But that's translated Lord. Kurios. And here, we read Jude saying that Jesus Christ, this is Jude, the brother of Jesus. Our only master. Our only Yahweh. There's only one God. Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 5, and now it makes sense to you. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, Now, you want to have some discussions about the Trinity. This is the book to have the discussions from. And Jude has no problem understanding there is one God. And so when that one God saved the people out of Egypt, it was Jesus Christ who saved them out of Egypt, just as much as it was God the Father, just as much as it was the Holy Spirit. It was one God. The God who brought them out of Egypt said in Deuteronomy 6.4 that they were to teach their children and to say repeatedly, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is one, Echad, God. Yahweh, the Lord, Kurios, Jesus Christ, is that God. Mm. Okay, I haven't even made it to the, like, Enoch stuff yet. I'd love to discourse right now for about ten minutes on the Trinity. But we don't have time. So maybe I'll do it in a future class come back. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling. He's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, if you were reading this carefully and scholastically, can we go back to the Elmo for just, I mean, to the PowerPoint for just a moment, class? Uh, thanks, y'all. There is a lot of scholars who think Second Peter was written after Jude because Second Peter had Jude in his hands. It could be the other way around. But look at just these comparisons that I've put up here for you. Second Peter 2.1 False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly 
bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Jude 4. Certain people have crept in secretly, unnoticed, long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, deny our only master. It continues, verse 4, if God, in Second Peter, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, Jude 6, the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to an extinction, making example of them, what's going to happen to the ungodly? Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, who likewise indulged in sexual immorality, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire to ashes. And so you, you, you've got this interrelation of the two. They're both making the same point. God saved us. Live like it. Don't embrace the life of the unsaved. They're destined for eternal punishment. They're destined for ashes. If you believe the Bible and if you believe the Lord Jesus, then live like it. Don't live like the ungodly. Remember, God did not save us so that we could be saved people living like the ungodly people. Ungodliness does not produce fruit and happiness and joy. I don't care about the illusion that it might. What we're about here is something that's bigger and something more important than living for the moment. My goal, if my goal today is to make sure there's food in my belly right now to make me smile, then heaven help me. Because there's more afoot than that. So we go back to the text. In like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme theme, the glorious ones. Big debate over what the glorious ones are here. I take it as angels. When the archangel Michael contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He didn't even blasphemely judge Satan. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. He let God be the rebuker. Now, you may be saying, I don't remember that story. That's because you haven't read the Assumption of Moses, which is one of these pseudepigraphal works. But Jude's audience knew the story. And so it's a great illustration of the point. Remember in that story? In the Assumption of Moses when that happened? In like manner, you need to pay attention. These people blaspheme all that they don't understand. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! They've walked in the way of Cain. They've abandoned for themselves for the sake of Gain to Balaam's era. There, look, look at these descriptions. These are graphic. They're hidden wreaths at your love feast. That'll rip your boat up. 
They're shepherds feeding themselves. Instead of watching the sheep, they're killing them and eating them. They're waterless clouds swept along by wind. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea that cast up foam of their own shame. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. If you read that, does it make you want to say, Oh, oh I want that! Oh, oh, that's where I want to be! Of course not! That's the reality of what the world has to offer. It gives the appearance of rain, but it doesn't give the rain. It gives the appearance of a fruit tree, but you wait until harvest time and there ain't nothing on that tree. It's washing up foam. It's dead. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way. Now, of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. He's quoting from Enoch. First Enoch. He's quoting from First Enoch chapter 1. Verse 9. Here is the book of Enoch. Chapter 1. Verse 9. And he's talking about when God will return. It's apocalyptic, remember, like Revelation. The Holy Great One will come forth from His dwelling. God's going to come. Now, this is what the readers of Jude had in their mind when Jude quotes this. So Jude is giving some sanction to this and saying that the great, holy great one will come forth from his dwelling. God will tread upon the earth on Mount Sinai. He'll appear in strength of his might from the heaven and all will be smitten with fear. The watchers will quake. Great fear and trembling will seize them to the ends of the earth. High mountains will be shaken. High hills made low. Melt like wax. Whoops. Hold on here. We're going to get this right. There we go. And the earth shall be wholly torn in pieces. All that's upon the earth will perish. There'll be a judgment upon all men. With the righteous, God will make peace and protect the elect and mercy be upon them. It's my book. I can write in it. It cost me three weeks labor. Peace and mercy. Those are the very things that Jude started his letter praying would be multiplied to his readers. And that's what comes to the righteous. That's what comes to those who belong to God. And they'll be prospered and all be blessed. His, he will help them all. Light shall appear unto them. He'll make peace with them. Behold, and here's the verse that's quoted. He comes with ten thousands of His holy ones. Uh, comes with ten thousand of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all. 
and destroy all the ungodly, to convict all flesh of their works of ungodliness that the ungodly have committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what he's going to do. And Jude goes on to explain it to us. I can get back to Jude. Jude quotes this. And after quoting it, he says, These are grumblers. These are malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters. They show favoritism to gain advantage. Don't be that way. Instead, beloved, remember the predictions of the apostles that in the last time these types of people are coming. They'll cause divisions. These are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. And then the doxology, which is the most beautiful doxology, I think, maybe in Scripture. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God keeps us from stumbling. Our Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, there's only one, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen. Well, this has been complete with points of home. We're out of time, but I want to give you that blessing, that benediction from Jude. And then uh, next week, we'll move back to 1 John. I thank you for being here this morning. Would you stand up and let me bless you while we're standing? Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in His grace, please. Before His glory is present, Him who is able.